0: We've got a round table consisting of Ben Nicholson-Smith from Rogers Sportsnet, Jesse goldberg Strausler, the voice of the Lansing Lugnuts, and one of the site experts and prolific writers of all things Blue Jays, Chris Henderson from Jay's Journal. And I have to tell you that uh, this particular roundtable will be especially revealing in the perspectives that will be offered on what the Blue Jays can do to address some real systemic issues that they have got. Depth concerns. In particular, their outfield, addressing their infield requirements. This team has a lot of work to do, my friends. And I think through listening to this roundtable, you'll get a better idea of whom you can focus on during this offseason as being potential wild cards or underdogs that might be signed, show up, and, and prove to be fan favorites. Who knows? We're hearing names like Ryan Barucki, and we're hearing names like Sean Reef Foley, and Danny Jensen and Anthony Alford, and needless to say, all of that within the backdrop of whatever Vlad Guerrero and Beau Bichette are able to do, which is like throwing lightning bolts across the sky here in Canada. Anything's possible. The sky's the limit. It just takes a little bit of patience, and I fear a great deal of profound belief in a front office that may have not earned that trust quite yet. But in this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about what kind of options and decisions might be made, as well as looking at some impressions of the World Series, and of course, talking about some of the challenges when it comes to re-signing fan favorites. So, I hope you stay tuned in and enjoy this episode of the Jay's Journal Podcast. My guests this afternoon on the J's Journal Roundtable podcast are some, are some individuals I've been waiting a great deal of time for because they've been so busy this time of year, but I've managed to align the stars and have them appear on the show today. Let's start with my first guest. He's the radio voice of the UJ single-A affiliate Lansing Lugnuts and author of The Baseball Thesaurus, and as if that's not enough, he's also the host of Around the Nets podcast Jesse goldberg Strasler is back on the Jays Journal. How are you, my friend?
1: i doing very well. Thank you for having me, Ari. My
0: next guest on the panel, you know him as one of the site experts of the Jays Journal. He's also one of the top Blue Jay writers across the country and could easily beat me in an arm wrestling contest. Of course, I'm talking with Chris Henderson. Chris, welcome back on the show.
2: Oh, well, thank you for having me. And You've never seen the arm wrestling. Uh, I'm sure you could probably beat me. <laughs>
0: Uh, And then finally on the panel, uh, last but not least, he's been covering Major League Baseball and your Toronto Blue Jays since 2013. He's the National Baseball Editor for Rogers Sportsnet. He also co-hosts a great baseball podcast in his own right with Arden Swelling called At The Letters. Ben Nixon smith is on the show. Ben, how are you?
3: I'm doing well, Ari. It's fun to be talking some baseball, some Blue Jays baseball uh, with you and and the entire roundtable and looking forward to it.
0: Well, the pleasure is all mine. I know you've been exceptionally busy, and I thought that I would start off this roundtable by looking quickly at – the post-analysis uh, of this World Series that we all experienced, some directly, some indirectly. Let's start with getting some impressions. I want to start with you, Ben. Uh, out of everything that transpired, and we know a great deal did, this was not a, an uneventful World Series. Some have argued that it may have been the best in recent memory, and some have even argued the best ever in the modern era. What stood out to you as a truly indelible moment that maybe separated this World Series from any you've seen in the past?
3: To me, it comes back to Game 5. And I know that that seems a little surprising maybe or counterintuitive after a World Series that went seven games. But that Game 5 in Houston tied 12-12 at one point. So many lead changes, so many comebacks. Just an incredible amount of drama. And it would have been better probably if that had happened in Game 7. But I'm not going to forget that game anytime soon. And I really think that it gave the series an extra edge and made it one of the better series that I've seen in recent memory.
2: You know, it's funny for me because, uh, you know, I'm, this year was, it was strange. I typically do follow the playoffs, whether the Blue Jays are involved, but just personal, personal life was busy after the season and, uh, you know, kind of just disheartened with the way that the year went. I didn't have as much interest, mm-hmm. but as the alerts kept coming in during that game five, like you're talking about, um, you know, I couldn't help but turn the TV on and just kind of be captivated. And, uh, you know, yeah, unfortunately, Game 7 was a little bit anticlimactic, but uh, overall it was a pretty incredible series.
1: If we could focus on the baseball, because there is that underlining, underlying theme of uh, how different was the baseball in the World Series compared to the regular season. And really, from the entire season, how different was this season's baseball compared to recent season's baseballs? I think that I would totally buy a bunch of marketing people sitting in a room and saying, we need to get more eyes on baseball. What do we do? And the answer is home runs. The answer is that's what brings people to watch. That's what gets people interested is you need to increase the offense. And we saw home runs. This world series had home runs unlike any other. And you got to go to Barry Bonds and the giants and right there in the midst of 2002 and it's storyline swirling about to find anything that would be comparable. So I think that that has to be a storyline that's discussed, the fact that this entertainment value is based around the fact that so so much of the offense, such a high percentage of the offense was based around the home run ball. But to separate that, to set that aside, what I'd like to focus on the most, and my takeaway from this World Series, is I thought that the team that wins at the end has the most dominant bullpen. That's something that I've always associated in baseball is that you have your lights-out closer and maybe, too, you couple him with a lights-out setup man and you win. And by the end of the World Series, really, by throughout the World Series, you understood that the Astros could not count on Ken Giles and they were trying to figure out who they could count on and there were multiple games in the playoffs, the ALCS and the World Series, where it was Lance McCullers throwing multiple innings right down to the 27th out, or it was Brad Peacock, or it was Charlie Morden at the end. And so forget the ninth inning closer. Find the guy who goes multiple innings is basically a piggyback starter, and he will win you the game. And it did lead to an anticlimactic Game 7 because the Astros never let the Dodgers back into it after they squandered their early chances.
2: Yeah, I couldn't help but laugh as I started reading a few articles. Uh, you know, in the days after the game, and, uh, you know, a few writers, and I can't even remember which, which at the time, you know, which were they were at the moment, Here, yeah, but uh, we said, you know, it was proven that you don't need that strong bullpen to win the World Series, and I went, oh, boy, okay, well, <laughs> you know, the narrative, uh, I guess, has sort of changed, but, uh, yeah, it, it, that you're definitely right, Jesse, that uh, that part was, was definitely strange and something that we haven't seen in a long time, but, uh, you know, those guys like Morton, like you said, stepped up and filled that role and uh, performed incredibly, so... It was a different year for that reason.
1: This is something I resist, is that idea of whichever writer, whichever fan base it might be looking at the World Series and saying, okay, what can our team do to be more like the world champion? Well, the Kansas City Royals won by never striking out and putting bat on balls and stringing a bunch of singles together, leading to that unhittable back end. But then after them, last year was the Andrew Miller World Series, or the Chicago Cubs and their magic. And... Every single year, different different teams find a different formula. It might be a defensive World Series. It might be the superstar ace of the rotation, that number one starter who wins you the whole thing. I find it very difficult to say, aha, and you circle it with red ink, and you say, this is what is going to lead us to a championship next year.
0: You bring up home runs as being obviously the most compelling facet of the game today and why people tune in and enjoy baseball, especially in moments where you see less than traditional ways to go about winning it, using starters in the eighth inning, uh, plugging in players, doing all sorts of creative double switches in, in National League parks. But you know who didn't hit home runs this year? It's the Blue Jays outfield. And I'm referencing, ironically enough, an article written by one of our guests, Ben. You talked about it. The Blue Jays outfielders in your recent Sportsnet article had a 7.11 OPS for the year, which ranked 28th in baseball. And you started theorizing 13 different players that could be looked at as potential options on on free agency, as well as some of the homegrown prospects let's get down to brass tacks for the panels if you had your brothers who do you prioritize as an immediate solution to give back some fan confidence that the blue jays have real robust outfielders that can hit home runs maybe going into 2018
3: yeah i think there are a lot of options for the blue jays here because you can look at free agency and you've got names like lorenzo kane uh even gerard dyson if you wanted to go a little bit more affordable John, Day, John Jay, excuse me, uh, would be another option who you can probably get on a one year deal. So you've got a range of guys available in free agency that you can conceivably pick from. But to me, the most interesting part of the outfield market this year is in trades. And I look at teams like the St. Louis Cardinals, um, potentially, you have clubs like the Chicago Cubs, the Milwaukee Brewers. There is some outfield depth to be found. And I know that when people hear St. Louis Cardinals, the initial thought is, uh-oh, well, what if they want Josh Donaldson in return? And let's face it, the Cardinals probably do want Josh Donaldson in return, but that doesn't mean the Blue Jays have to give him up. So I think when you look at a team that has so many outfielders right now, the Cardinals almost have to move someone. So for the Jays, is that Tyler O'Neill? Is that Dexter Fowler? You look even and try to get a Tommy fam. I mean, there are lots of different ways that you could do this, but to me, St. Louis is one really intriguing match if the Blue Jays do explore trades to try to address that outfield need.
2: Yeah, I, I, find, I think it'll be interesting to see what uh, you know what kind of return. The, the biggest question for me with the offseason, with the Blue Jays in the trade market, is what uh, you know which players they might be willing to, to move. You know, there, there certainly is more talent than a lot of people are willing to give the minor league system, at least in my eyes. Uh, But to me, it's a matter of what the front office is actually willing to move. So, you know, like I released an article uh, earlier on Tuesday here, and um, it was just talking about predictions. And, you know, the more I thought about trades, the more I just kept thinking to myself, you know what? What are they going to be willing to move? I don't. I don't know. And uh, I think I'll probably be surprised, regardless of what happens, because at this point I just I can't really identify anyone that would be bring back significant value that they would uh, that they would be wanting to trade. But uh, you would have a, probably a better insight to that than I would at this stage.
1: Going through Ben's list, I think what jumped out at me, and we've discussed this over the course of this season and the summer, are you mentioned power. I want to focus a little bit on speed because a name like Ender Inciarte jumped out at me just to add to the Blue Jays' team's speed. Now, there are some names that Ben listed that are up there in years, for example, Curtis Granderson. And that has been one of the worries about the Blue Jays is that this team has gotten too much older and you want to Mm -hmm. look for ways to get younger. And so, yes, I would look toward youth or at least relative youth and I'd look to making the Blue Jays a faster team, particularly offensively.
3: Yeah, it's a really interesting discussion. And and you look at the ways that speed can impact the game. Uh, You have a guy like Lorenzo Cain who uses that speed to improve his production offensively and also defensively. And I, I think when you're talking about a team that lost 86 games last year, the Blue Jays do have a lot of room for improvement. And if they were to go out there and acquire a player who brings that speed, then you're able to improve the team in run prevention and in run scoring. So, that's, it's really going to be tough, and I think when you talk about teams that have these players, that have these young, controllable, speedy players, they are going to expect a whole lot in return, and that's where you get to a question of some of the guys that, that Jesse watched this year, You know, some of the prospects that came through the system, and whether the Blue Jays would be willing to give those guys up in return for an established major league player.
0: And maybe I was just spoiled as a result of growing up in an era where watching Vince Coleman and Ricky Henderson dominate their respective leagues at will was, for me, a really compelling element of baseball. I'm curious, Jesse, at what point did this turn into an opportunity cost where teams began sacrificing speed in favor of home runs? Was it as simple as identifying the big Mark McGuire, Barry Bonds, uh, Sammy Sosa era as destroying the notion of what speed and athleticism means? Or is that more of a philosophical angle that certain front offices are just tethered to where they say we want to prioritize the ability to hit the ball as hard as possible versus playing cool, fundamental, station-to-station, crafty baseball?
1: No, I think we cycle through the offensive factors, and we take a good hard look at how is the game currently being played. This past season, home runs were hit at an unheard of rate, and so because of that, why would you want a guy at first base trying to steal second, where there's a percentage chance that he could get thrown out, when you've got a great chance suddenly that your batter, whomever he might be, might take you out? So when home runs, when the likelihood of a home run jumps, and not just for that Mark McGuire, not just for the Justin Smoke, as an offense, you do slow things down because you want to give the batter the chance to supply the offense.
0: I think it just might be the cynic in me, Jesse, who thinks to himself, not just whether or not speed translates into putting ducks on the pond and getting them into scoring position, but staying out of double plays. The Blue Jays were abysmal this year in destroying so many opportunities. To go after ducks on the pond because the players plodded along like lumbering baseball troglodytes. Chris, if you had to go out and look at a speed option that wouldn't be exclusively only about speed, but could maybe introduce another dimension of the game to the Blue Jays, are there any players that you would prioritize from the front office perspective?
2: Well, who I maybe would prioritize and who I really think are realistic options this offseason are probably two different names but one guy that I've kind of got my eye on is one that Ben mentioned you know I think Gerard Dyson is somebody that could be a decent fit for this team next year the way it's currently built you know you've got Kevin Flaher in center field and it's presumed Steve Pierce is going to play the majority of the games in left field as long as he's healthy And I feel like you kind of want to get, you know, people talk about maybe the best thing for Triple-A or for Teoscar Hernandez starting in Triple-A. But I feel like it'd be great if we had an opportunity for him to to prove that he belongs to this level. And I feel like an acquisition like Dyson um, can check off a lot of boxes. You know, he's a guy that doesn't have to play every single day. Um, He brings some defense. He brings an improved element at center field when Far needs a day off. Um, You know, he he brings that speed element to the game, and uh, you know, he's not an ideal type. He's not a guy that's going to hit at the top of the lineup with, um, you know, with great success. I think he hit like two fifty six this year, but I feel like just given the way that the rest of the outfield's constructed and giving Tasker and is a chance, uh, you know, to show what he wants or show what he's capable of. I feel like he's a guy that might be a good fit.
3: I expect that both. Hernandez and Alford probably will get some kind of a shot uh, next year. And, and I, 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 do, I do agree that, that those guys are, are worth a look. Um, I, I wonder if, you know, there's a way where the Blue Jays go out and add an outfielder, which I really do think they, they will do this winter, um, and still find ways to get playing time for Alford and Hernandez. And I think part of it might just come down to the fact that on a team that has a, a number of players over 30, uh, including Pierce, who, whose track record um, certainly includes a lot of time on the DL. Uh, a player in Kevin Pillar, who, even though he's under 30, is one of the one of the younger position players on this team. He's still someone who plays with such a level of intensity that it wouldn't be a shock to anyone if he, you know, ends up running into a wall and needing a bit of a breather at some point. So that's where I think these opportunities can open up. And when they happen, I'm really interested to see what guys like Fernandez and Alford can do with the big league level.
1: Let me add in that c- Anthony Alford has had season after season where he's been injured for very unusual and quirky incidents, true, but we would like to see him get through a full season without a serious injury.
2: I'm curious what you guys think with Alfred. Do you, do you think he's a realistic contender for a spot for opening day, or is, is, is he somebody more that you, like you say, Ben, that's uh, going to be an inevitable injury covering? type of uh, guy whether Pierce eventually ends up in the DL you know hopefully he won't but it seems like it's uh and he's kind of falling into that Tulowitzki, Devin Travis category of he's going to get theirs at some point
3: yeah I, I think it's quite likely I mean you can't really count on Pierce for more than 90 or 100 games and that's okay he's still worth six million bucks and probably even has a little bit of trade value if they wanted to go down that path but yeah I, I think that um, to answer your question about Alford and where he starts the season, I, I would think that it's either Double A AA or Triple A, um, somewhere in the upper minors. He obviously got to Triple A very briefly last year, um, and as well as his major league stint, that was pretty short before he hit the DL. So I think he'll get some more time, some extended at bats, to get those reps. Because you know, as, as Jesse was saying, this isn't a player who has a ton of experience against the advanced pitching, whether it's changeups or different looks from a lefty guys with just the ability to spot the ball. These are the kinds of things that he'll be exposed to in the upper minors in a way that will help him once he is asked to take on a full load of playing time at the big league level.
1: The great thing for both Hernandez and Alford is that they answer Ari's points in both areas, that both of those guys have pop, and both of them have great speed. So they help you at... In each of those concerns, if they're on the base paths, they're going to score if a ball hits the gap. And if they're at the plate, they're a threat to go extra bases or to leave the yard. So they're there. You want them to get experience. You want them to grow into the role. And at some point, yes, the keys will be handed fully to them.
0: One of our writers at Jay's Journal, Craig Borden, published a a recent article that he called, I Feel Like I've Seen This Before, where he was addressing the way the Blue Jays have traditionally handled impending free agents who are fan favorites. And needless to say, gentlemen, it's not a pretty picture. It seems like it's almost the kiss of death in this baseball town that if you become a perennial fan favorite, that you have heart, that you have clutch capacity every day to entertain the fan base and show them how much it means to you to win that you invariably end up leaving the city and, and usually in, in the poorest manner possible. And of course, all I have to do is reference Roberto Alomar or Carlos Delgado or Roy Halliday. And now we come to Josh Donaldson. Ben, why does that happen? Why don't we have any success stories about fan favorites who get renewed for a big contract and gracefully retire to greener pastures here in North Bay, as opposed to going down south to the States where we have to read about what kind of great career output they still have?
3: Yeah, that's a that's a great question and a tough question. I, I think the only way I could start to answer it would just be to point to how exceptional it is for guys to retire on their own terms. I mean, even when you look around at, at this year's aging group of players, you have guys like Jose Batista of course, but beyond that, Carlos Beltran, who ended after a season where he won the World Series, but compared to his previous production, he had fallen off. And even Curtis Granderson, who had a good start to the season, and then faltered once he got to Los Angeles, was left off the World Series roster. And even for guys who have great careers, it is tough to end on their own terms the way David Ortiz did. But as this connects to Donaldson, it's really going to be the big question once the calendar turns to 2018. And I think that for the first couple months of the offseason, we're going to be distracted. The Blue Jays are going to make a couple moves, add an outfielder, maybe a utility type. They'll add an arm or two, and we'll all be talking about that, the Major League roster, for next year. But Donaldson, once his arbitration case comes up in January, is going to be the absolute focal point of the Blue Jays, and maybe even before then, because it's possible that his name will come up in trade rumors. As a player who's really less than 12 months away from hitting free agency at this point, mm-hmm. there's less than a year remaining in this time with the Blue Jays, potentially. And so that creates this... this Potential pressure, it at least creates tension um, and, and uncertainty as the Blue Jays decide what to do next. And my expectation is they sign him to a one-year deal for 2018 and then see where it goes from there. I, I'm not expecting, I don't know, maybe you guys have a, have a different expectation. I'd definitely be interested to hear um, if, if anyone does. But to me, I don't expect that we're going to see a long-term extension with Donaldson.
1: I think it hurts worse because you've got those prior guys. I think, as Craig points out, you can link Donaldson with all of those past players of memory. And we can point out exceptions, right? We can point out that Jose Bautista stayed to the Jays to the end, and so you did get to see the twilight of his career in Toronto, whereas Edwin Encarnacion moved on, and now we're seeing his twilight. This was a rapidly diminished season for him with Cleveland. So it it does hurt worse when you think about the players who left, and now you're looking at Josh Donaldson and thinking, yes, he was a star with the athletics, but he wasn't what he became with us. And what he became with us was one of the transcendent players in baseball. Now we need to figure this out before things go sour. That's hard enough on its own, but when it's getting linked... When you're eating a meal and you're thinking about the meals that you've had before, now your memory and your emotions get involved. And I do agree with Ben. I do think that, as Craig fears, I think that this could take a turn where we're looking short term.
2: Yeah, and for me, you know, I think there's been so much talk about whether you know what the two choices are to trade him in this offseason or extend him in this offseason. And of course, uh, people worry that waiting until the trade deadline, if you are going to move them, would diminish this value. Um, but I think, from my, you know, the way that I'm interpreting the way the front office is looking at this is that there's a pretty solid little core. And we've talked about this lots on the show, Ari. Um, you know, guys like by Marcus Stroman and Aaron Sanchez and Roberto Osuna. And, you know, if if the cards fall the right way, if Sanchez is healthy and gets back to being a a Cy Young candidate type of pitcher and Stroman continues to take steps forward and that sort of thing, you know, you've got a great little core to, to build around. And with the guys that are in the minor league system that aren't that far away, Donaldson could be the kind of bridge player that would make sense to keep. That said, if you open this season with the same kind of performance that we saw in 2017, then it would probably make sense to move on from him. So I don't blame the front office for kind of being stalled in a position of, you know, what's the best way to proceed? Because as we know, it's it's going to take $25, $30 million a year to sign him. And that's a lot of money, especially when you've got the guys on the on the roster that are already that are already making $20 million a year, the Russell Martins and the, and the Tretti Lewitskis. So you can't just sign $20 million players every time that the opportunity comes up. You have to evaluate each situation, and, and this is a tricky
1: one. I still have a suspicion that the youngsters in the minor leagues are more than one year away. That is, at the best of the minors, you're not going to see their best in 2018. And so because of that, as you look at the 2018 season and say, what is the most that we can accomplish this coming year? That's where Donaldson most definitely figures in. But you can't start to go into that well of when will Vladi Jr. arrive or when will this player arrive because you're not going to get his best. You're not going to get his true impact yet. You're going to get him just like we saw with, let's say, a Carlos Ramirez or a Teoscar Hernandez where, hey, here's your major league experience. You're going to give us some great games and we'll suffer through some hiccups. Well, at the same time, the veterans on the team are saying, we want to make the playoffs, otherwise our season is a disappointment. So, yeah, those questions ahead are going to be very interesting.
0: I think, if anything, we can all agree that a a player like Austin Matthews has effectively made it worse for the Blue Jays when it comes to fan expectations. I mean, not only did Keith Law double down on Vladdy, but then Bichette's award at the end of the season further enhance the amazing allure that awaits these players here in Toronto and the way they're perceived by the fan base. And I'm wondering, Jesse, you've seen them up close. And I know, Ben, you've written on them. And, Chris, you've evaluated them at length. Let, let's start with you, Jesse. What if Vlad and Bo arrive in 2019? And it's... Uh, it's a uh, It's a hard go. It's it's Major League Baseball. Even Carlos Delgado, who at one point was one of the top elite prospects in the game, came up and struggled struggled mightily before he had to work on a swing. What happens if they struggle and we have all these marketed expectations? Do you see the front office being patient? Are you fearful about the way that they'll be pushed and developed in the majors?
1: Well, I do expect them to struggle at some point. Aaron Judge, think of him in 2016. Then he turned into the 2017 Rookie of the Year. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is right now playing in the Dominican Summer League and his OPS is 629 and he's slugging 323. It's okay. He's 18 and he's playing in the Dominican (laughs) Summer League with men. Bo Bichette told me during the year, mid-year, his first full season playing professional baseball that he was really tired and that's when his batting average went from 400 to 380, which is still all right. but for each of them, they do need that time for them to grow and the problem is that, that time for them to grow, especially at the major league level, and adjust and get used to how you live and the media crush and the intention and the microcosm that every single one of your performances is thought to be, it does not occur away from the public eye, that your growth is put under the microscope, that every single guy is going to watch every single one of your swings and it will be broken down and your flaws will be seen and talked about and if you commit two errors you will be the topic of conversation with Mike Wilner. So because of that, I do think that for fans, you love this, right? Bobachet won the award, and Keith Law is gushing over Vladimir Guerrero Jr., and none of this is fraudulent. This is all true. And you somehow have to keep that thought in your head, while at the same time holding a second thought, which is however good they might be at 19 and 20 or 20 and 21, wait till they get to 23 and 24, and that's when they're going to be the perennial all-stars that you hope them to be.
3: Yeah, it's, it's such a tough balance, right? Because you're looking at these guys with so much expectation, so much excitement, mm. as, there, as there should be. I mean, there has to be around guys who are this good when you have a team that's losing more often than it's winning. So the Blue Jays fans were really given a gift this year uh, when it came to the seasons that Bichette and Guerrero Jr. had. And at the same time, there is the expectation that at some point they will struggle because between the fatigue, between the challenges of professional baseball, uh, hitting, just hitting a baseball such a hard thing to do. You have defense to learn. You have your own body to adjust to. The possibility of injuries, which no Blue Jays fan wants to think about, but certainly does happen to prospects, even top prospects. So it's a lot of a lot of different variables. And then to answer your original question, Ari, about what would happen if they reached the major leagues in 2019 and faltered, I mean that's where you have to have this team surrounded by a lot of good pieces. And going back to our discussion about the World Series, you look at the Astros, you look at the Dodgers. I think you can apply this also to the Cubs. Uh, it certainly applies to the Yankees, to Cleveland. The best teams in baseball have so much depth that they can absorb a major injury. And you look at what the Nationals were able to do without Adam Eaton for an entire season. I mean, they basically got through the year and didn't blink. Um, That's what you have to be able to do. That's the level of injury that you have to be able to withstand. And that's where this offseason, the Blue Jays need to add a lot of talent to the point that if someone, one of their best players, is out for a month, they don't collapse the way they did in 2017 at times.
1: Let me add on. That I think what's going to help out these guys is that there's two of them. And so if Bo busts but Vladdy excels, the attention will go to Vladdy. And I also expect next year that we are going to hear a lot of talk about Ryan Barucki, who's a legit lefty starter with hopes in the major leagues. I think we're going to hear a lot about Sean Reed Foley. TJ Zoic and the raves that he's getting in the Arizona Fall League, he's going to be on the map next year. And I believe that there is some idea that Nate Pearson might have been the best pitcher selected in last year's draft, and there's going to be a lot of attention his way. So next year, the hopes in the farm system will not be entirely carried by Guerrero and Bichette.
0: I can't thank all three of you enough for taking the time today on this roundtable. Let's go around the horn. I want to know what you're all up to. Let's start with you, Jesse. What have you been working on, and how can my listeners find you on social media?
1: Huh. I've been writing and writing and writing, so it's been a ton of fiction where it's been a ton of about baseball. I'm on Twitter, at Jay Goldstrass, and in my spare time, I read columns written by Ben Nicholson Smith.
3: <laughs> that's awesome. Thanks, thanks, Jesse. Yeah, I, uh, I try to write uh, at sportsnet.ca, um, so that's where you can find my stuff. And uh, thanks, thanks for having me on, Ari. It was, it was a lot of fun talking with you guys, talking baseball, and, and thanks to everyone who listened.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you can find uh, my work. It's been pretty regular lately. It's been amazing just to see how much, even though the season's over, Blue Jays fans are interested and excited about uh, the offseason. So you can find my work and uh, the work of plenty of our writers at at jaysjournal.com. And you can find me on Twitter at baseballforbrains. And it's baseball number four brains.
0: All three of you do fantastic work, and everyone can find you online. So keep it up. Thanks again for the join the K is the podcast reality. All
1: right, big thanks.
2: Pleasure gentlemen. Thank you. That was that was fun guys. Thanks.